resting by the fireside it is i the young grognard grognard the young and i unfortunately have something of a malady of the throat so you're going to have to deal with the greatest kind of podcast and that is a podcast run by somebody with a bit of a a throat problem i'm also joined by sarah hello see she gets to be i speak normally okay you get the dulcet tones of a normal voice from me aha I'm probably going to squeak a bit, <laughs> so I'm going to be going back to uh, the 13-year-old Dan, who had just been cutting edge and learning how to play the game, so if I have to push my voice a bit just to get the real tone, that's like ASMR, but for people who You're gonna shatter want a little pain. Just... Yeah, okay. I'll have to take a couple lessons out of your book on that one, but <clears throat> we're talking today a little bit more about that campaign builder. I believe we're on episode number eight for this, which is kind of surprising. Sarah, are you surprised we've made it eight whole episodes into this? No. I figured it would take that many and go that long. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just surprised that it's worked out as well as it has. I think it's kind of, a, I don't know, a testament to you and the rest of the gang of friends who help write this and help work on it that... I don't know. It's it's a bit of a fun project, and with enough of a twisted arm, it seems like anybody's willing to do something for me when I ask. <laughs> but <clears throat> when you threaten bodily harm, it's hard to say no. Yeah, I mean, bodily harm is the best kind of harm, in my opinion. Simple and straight and to the point. But as we continue with the eighth episode of the campaign builder, I I do think we should take a, a quick second just to note that this campaign world just has we've you know, talked about a lot of different things and a lot of different groups, but the fact that we really haven't named anything is kind of kind of interesting to me. I, I don't think it's problematic, but I think just because we've been shooting from the hip, it makes sense that we haven't really been able to do, you know, much of that. Um, so I don't know. If you are writing this sort of thing for your own group to use, like, do you feel like you'd need to have all these names really hammered down in your head when you're writing it? Or do you feel like it's one of those things that a name comes to you when it comes to you? Um, well, I just started writing my own campaign. I mean, it's inspired by um, the Sinister Secrets of Saltmarsh, but I kind of have been writing my own campaign for my own session that um, sessions that I've been running. And the last thing I did was name anything. Um, like naming the town or the name of the tavern, even the characters. Like I would build the characters and then name them last just because for me I found naming things to be a lot more difficult than I thought. I don't know because I feel like there's a lot of weight that's put into a name. Um, so I, you know, I think I did that part last personally um, and that just felt natural to me. So, you know, I'm going to come at you fully loaded like some asshole who owns a podcast, but I did do an episode on names. 
and I talked openly about how I really love names. I think names are, like, fun to come up with and fun to, like, create creative ones, and I love etymology of names, so I love, like, you know, historical and language-based reasons for why things are the way they are. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So even, like, the term kingdom alone has, has an etymological meaning. So when it comes to coming up with names for, like, groups and stuff, I like the names to have a bit of meaning, and I like them to have a cool feel to them. But I also do have a very firm stance on the idea that coming up with a name that comes to you very quickly and using it is a good rule of thumb or a good exercise because when you think about certain names that are just like hardwired into our brains like when you think of the name Bilbo Baggins if you weren't I don't know privy to the information of what Bilbo was all about and the storyline behind him and all this history and lore with him the name Bilbo has like 13 year olds making jokes about dildos written all over it right mm -hmm. but what's great about Bilbo is that everything surrounding him has made him sort of i don't know like his name is made great because of the actions of his character same thing with like gandalf like gandalf doesn't sound like a great name either but it's because of the actions of the character that the name becomes great so i'm i'm a firm believer that players and dms shouldn't have to come up with names like right on the spot um and like wish them to be perfect or sound super ass, like badass and awesome right off the bat like those names slowly over time become awesome and even if they're still silly i mean i had one campaign with uh some of the people who've helped record a couple of the episodes in the series but um one of the locations we had was this very like a south american vibe place called chichihuil and everybody made fun of chichihuil all the time and you know the name stuck not only because it was kind of silly but i thought it was unique enough and had enough of sort of like a etymological like faux root that people got a vibe from it from there so going forward we might have an episode where we start naming these various people and things apart from ryan l litchie <laughs> um <clears throat> but only so that we can kind of like put down you know like place markers on these things so we don't have to keep saying things with these really vague like oh the evil guy or like the big bad evil guy or like oh the evil group mm -hmm. like we can actually name them you know mm -hmm. but anyway without uh further ado i think it's time we jump into one of these questions um so the first question we have is what relics of the past shape the present <clears throat> and just because We've talked about it since the first episode with you and me that we felt like the world should have a level of intrigue to it and sort of a level of like richness to the environs of history and the idea that there's sort of a world that's been lived in and there's lots of signs of a generations that came before. I think a lot of the relics of the past that shape the present should be things like fallen empires and kingdoms. So certain cultural designs to architecture left behind like vaulted ceilings and like ruined chapels on hilltops and stuff like that the idea of certain statues to kings that people have forgotten the names of mm -hmm. like i really like that idea as well and i think that the world does well with having that not to mention <clears throat> it also helps with like coming up with the reason for monsters and dungeons is the idea that like which denizens would take up abode inside of these places you know what i mean mm -hmm. 
so I like doing it that way, but when you hear the idea of relics of the past shaping the present, like, do you get any flavorful fantasy ideas that come to mind for that? Um, I think kind of similar to that, it would be, you know, like <coughs> a, a relic of a royal family that is, you know, like, because for instance, we were talking about, um, I think it was last episode about like what magical mis mystical material is present in the world and how there are these items that when they are with certain people and part of certain alignments they pick up that essence or whatever they get influenced by that so it seems natural that there would be relics of perhaps long gone um, empires or perhaps you know a heroic knight who was you know heir to a throne and he had a, a sword or something that was I don't know how it would have shaped the world, though. I think that's the important qualifier, but um, things like that. that well, have, I mean, know... they, they shape the present, not necessarily the world. So yeah. the idea that the world fights battles with weapons of, of old, the idea that, like, an age of smithing has passed where these weapons that could take on such characteristics and power are sort of now just relics of the past. Like, the idea that those kinds of swords help shape the present you could make an argument that the reason why those swords are so important is because of their heraldic symbols like when you have a king for instance just because this seems to be a theme of the campaign but if you have a king who's really awful but he brandishes the sword of a paladin who is his great great grandfather like that's a relic of the past that shapes the present mm -hmm. because that could be his birthright right there mm -hmm. like that blade could be basically the only reason why he's able to hold the throne he could be called a paladin or some knight of some order and the only way that he gets away with doing that is by holding the sword and saying it belongs to him and we can make that a theme for a lot of this is the concept of of a birthright given to you through like a lineage of stuff and now if we were to tie this again back to things like dragons you could also suggest things like <clears throat> maybe like special gear or garb made from shed dragon scales and the idea that certain dragon scales like evil ones can only be gained from having killed dragons and good dragon scales are only gained by having I don't know, earned the trust and love of a dragon. Mm -hmm. So either way, you've accomplished a masterful feat. So a certain relic of the past that shapes the present could be something of like a dragon-scaled heirloom, like some sort of headdress made of, you know, five different dragon scales. Like that that could be some huge yeah. relic of the past that shapes the present. So, I mean, I like that we answered this question in two different ways by taking relics to mean both like objects in hand and both like objects of the world around you. Um, but yeah, I also think that you could extend this one step further, uh, to the side and you could talk about magic items from the past too and suggest that maybe at the time of dragons where the dragon wars were first going on, <clears throat> that perhaps great magics were being like, you know, created or explored at that time because they had to, and the dragons were kind of allowing such explorations to occur. Mm. So... It makes sense to me that magic from an old age could be uh, could be an item that people seek now, like ancient scrolls of higher level scroll. You know what I mean? Higher mm -hmm. level spells. They could be like the last of their kind, and thus wizards who wish to learn and like go higher up in the scales of their craft would have to seek these sorts of things out because being a caster with you know high level spells would mean that you could possibly win 
you know, the the love or trust of another dragon or, or you know, yada, yada, yada. So, again, I think this is a world also that because it's coming to the end of the age of bravery and heroism, they're probably looking towards relics of the past to help explain or give guidance for their future. Mm -hmm. It's not even like how they shape the present. It's that the people of this realm are like actively looking towards the past saying like, how can we go back to when times were good? Right. Let's take these relics and like make them almost religious. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But let's go into the next question, which seems to me to sort of have a bigger, I don't know, meaning to it than just what it's asking. <clears throat> But the question is, how are taxes and tributes collected in your world? And so, I mean, honestly, I think that the concept of taxes being collected just speaks to the idea of if our world has things like feudalism or mm -hmm. kingdoms or yada, yada, yada. So if we're going <clears> to... <throat> I was thinking about that the other day. Which part? Just I was driving and I was like, okay, thinking about the campaign. And I'm like, okay, well, then is it like, do you have you know, meritocracies or oligarchies and all that kind of stuff. And I was just trying to imagine what sort of, um, I guess, setup they would have and what would kind of be possible and proliferating in this campaign, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, and kind of piggybacking off of that, one thing that I was thinking about was the idea of how many campaigns I've made that have just been far too big and I've just come up with way too much stuff and having to rein these huge concepts into like a smaller more manageable continent of of work so when we think about our two ideas together i think what we can agree on is that we can suggest that there's like major empires or alliances and these would be made up of kingdoms that have all sworn allegiance to some cause or something like that but for the most part it's not a gigantic world spanning campaign and instead it's like a major continent and there's major regions within it and there's major empires or kingdoms on it so the idea of taxes being gathered means that those taxes go to fund empires mm -hmm. so there would probably be some sort of like higher up group that organizes the collection of these taxes whether it's for you know the more subtle gaining for like a village you know through um uh what are they called uh, people who gain gather taxes a reeve um whether it's them on like a village and town scale or it's the actual like reeves that head to the empire's headquarters and the emperor himself collects those taxes you know what i'm saying mm. so i like the idea that there would have to be some level of organization and then amongst these alliances and things there's hundreds of squabbles people are swapping sides left and right and the idea that like it's a very political game where there's one major overarching group of like empire and then there's all the different little alliances that surround it and fight it and so there i like the idea that there that's where the political intrigue exists you mm -hmm. know what i mean yeah with tons of shifting parts <clears throat> and then the next part is uh how are tributes collected now i like the idea that tributes both religious and like to heroes or dragons or whatever i like tributes because again in an age of heroism and in, in bravery 
where people still revere things like dragons to an extent or heroes to an extent it does seem kind of interesting to think of people paying tributes to things like warlords or paying things to like heroes who live in the land and people come together and you know offer them food and gifts for what they've done but i also like the idea of people offering tributes to like evil beings like dragons or or what have you and the the idea being that like i don't know there's a living, breathing world that exists on a day-to-day -day basis outside of adventuring. And the idea that these people would, like, I don't know, pay homage to, to dragons or, or powerful heroes who have kind of retired in the land. It almost makes me think of um, uh, the Keep on the Borderlands, or maybe, no, not Keep on the Borderlands, the uh, Village of Omelette. And I think a lot about the two heroes who live up in the in the tower, and they're like retired warriors who work for a king in a different land, and the idea that they're sort of quest givers in their own right. So the idea that they don't collect taxes, but they act almost as like, I don't know, seers over the village. So they would collect tribute because the village would turn to them for guidance. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. So I, I like the idea that like not all leaders have to collect taxes. Not all leaders have to have a title. You can have a village of people or a group of farms, some little hamlet somewhere, or a thorpe that just has a couple of powerful adventurers who retired one day, found a nice tower somewhere out in the middle of the fields, and called it home, and villagers just kind of flock to them. And since they don't collect taxes, they just offer them tributes, you know? Yeah. So I like that because it sort of encapsulates the, the gravity of, or, or I guess I would say the magnitude of politics in this world where you can have things like a village with 30 people and then a couple of adventurers who sort of help guide them all. And then you have things like continent-spanning empires that demand taxes. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I like the idea that there is that level of, like, magnitude and in, in those different levels of, uh, of strength with, <clears throat> like, uh, a governance and politic. Mm -hmm. But the last question that we have before my throat explodes out of my throat, um, <laughs> or I guess out of my neck would be the better term. Mm. Um, are there evil races in your realm such as the drow. Now, I know we talked about this before, so if you would like, you could probably summarize a little bit on what we said before about the uh, evil races. I mean, the dragonborn. That's true, but I also <laughs> meant, like, the goblins and the orcs. Well, that's what I was going to say next, is, the, is that we have got evil races, but there's a certain degree of gray area that comes along with that, um... Where, you know, there's a certain degree of neutrality that comes with the goblins in our world and the orcs and things like that, where they are generally considered very evil races, but in this world it's much more of a, they're just trying to get by, and less of it being an, like, outward evilness, I suppose. Um, I don't know if you want to build off of that. Well, I was going to say that they're still evil, but it's evil in a sense that they're trying to survive as well. Yeah. So the idea that, like, being evil is great and all, but being an orc and, like, not having food to eat and having to, like, play nice with a couple of adventurers in order to eat for that night, like, it might mean having to put your evil hat on the, on the coat rack right. and come sit down right. by the fire as a reasonable individual. So... I like the idea that it's that inhospitable. You know, honestly, I'm going to wax a little bit of, like, fond remembrance to one of my first modules I ever really, like, found and, and like, kind of loved on my own. And it was a it was a third edition module called... Uh, 
I think it was a dark and stormy night, but night with a with a K. A little play on words there. But there's this tower in the middle of the wilderness on this very busy road, but it's like the longest stretch on the road where there's no villages or inns or, or anything like that, except for this one big tower. And the idea is that there's this huge storm that comes by every once in a while. And what I love about the module is that like evil creatures and good creatures will end up at the tower but they'll both know that if they try to fight it's going to be dangerous so there's an unspoken truce that if the if good guys and bad guys end up at the tower during a storm there's a ceasefire and nobody fights because neither party wants to be out in the rain and neither party wants to be dead so orcs and elves will like lower their weapons and agree like to stay in opposite spots in the tower so that they don't die from each other and because they don't want to die from the outside elements and i just i love that idea and that always struck me as such an interesting concept <clears throat> and i like to think that in a world outside of traditional Gygaxian styled like dungeons and, and lawfulness versus chaos I like to believe that there's a bit more intelligence to bad guys and I like the idea that evil races have a level of tolerance and intelligence to them mm -hmm. you know what I mean yeah so you know when we think about things like the drow I, I just like to think that <clears throat> even though they're evil they're not like chaotic stupid right like they're not just out to murder for the sake of murdering like they're just like any other good race and that they just believe their doctrine and dogma to be so true that anybody saying otherwise is deserving of death you know what i'm saying right yep so you know but i think that that concept of no true evils and then no true goods is kind of good I also feel like that's kind of an unspoken rule in any form of literature, you know? So, honestly, I I know this is probably not a great idea just because of my throat, <coughs> but I'm willing to do a fourth question just because it seems like it's a pretty easy and quick one, and it's one that I think people like to talk about when they've read the Legend of Drizzt series and they've heard everything and anything about the drow and the fact that they just mentioned the drow in the the aforementioned uh, uh question i think speaks volumes about this next one but the next question is are there many underground locations beneath your world now frankly i think that cavernous travel is just as important as dungeonous travel and when we think about again the ruins of the old world and people like setting up dungeons out there in like these old buildings and castles and towers and things that makes tons of sense but it also seems perfectly like sensible that evil beasties would live in caves one because their dark vision allows them to do so comfortably two because caverns are relatively well insulated and hold a decent temperature and so anybody who wants to take up residence in there it's usually a pretty safe bet that you can manage well enough inside so would beasts living in underground locations make sense yes so would that mean there's probably a chance for some sort of like government or some sort of settlement underneath the earth yes but here's my issue with the success of things like salvatore's drist series and all the extensions of that i think people just sort of assume we need to have things like drow in the world and frankly 
I think I can speak for a lot of people who I play with and a lot of people who have read Driz's stuff and know that while he's good and the writing is good, I don't need Drow in my world to make my world feel full. And frankly, I think that having to scoop out the Underdark to make room for that race just so you can say you have it feels really strange to me. So, are there many underground locations? I would say there would be just as many sensible underground locations as there would be abandoned castles and towers and settlements on the surface. If there happened to be dwarvish mines underground or, I don't know, underground cavernous dwellings for the drow or the durger or the Sverfneblin, then so be it they can be under there. But I don't like the idea that I almost have to come up with these things. Would there be many locations? I don't think that there would be too many of these places. But I do think that there should be enough that there's like hubs of sorts. You know what I mean? Like you could have a certain mountain range that is bullet holed with tons of Durger mines. And thus the dwarves had to leave. Or there could be one giant forest with a huge cavernous system underneath it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, or maybe a mountain range with dark, deep forests on either side of it. And the drow live within the mountains and pollute the forests on the side. Because frankly, I've always thought the drow would make better use of living outside in the forest. Like really de deep, dense forests that don't see much sunlight. But that's just me, I guess. Mm. But I don't know. What's your stance on all that? I know you've... From what I know, Sarah, I don't believe you've read the Legend of Drizzt series, right? I have not. I did go to a bookstore and I tried to find the first one and they didn't have it, so then I just gave up. Um, I don't really have any attachment to underground societies and all that kind of stuff. Like, I know that the Drow is a very popular race and that they exist and everyone's kind of hoorah for them, but for me, my experience with D&D &D has been resoundingly lacking in terms of Drow. Um, so... Do I think there should be some underground hubs? Yes, because I think it's interesting for players to get that kind of combat and that kind of exploration. You know, it's an aspect of the world that they don't get to see very often and it will flesh out and it will, like we say, make more intrigue and engage players more in a more varied like setting, which right. I think is good. But in terms of like needing to have a whole underground city and a whole underground race and that's a big other part of your world, I think is not really necessary and... I don't really see a big purpose for having this huge involved underground system and city and, and I guess empire or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, and I'll say also that I think it does help establish the fantastic in a fantasy world. And it definitely makes it feel like this is a world of, of fantasy and magic and myth mm -hmm. where you can have entire underground cities illuminated by bioluminescent fungus and you know you think about um old modules like descent uh like the descent series with um you know the the drow queen and you think about how many modules i'm thinking about the the module with the kuatoa and the like the uh blip dual pulp the uh the goddess of the of the kuatoa there's that one quest where the party has to go deep into the underdark and they find this underground like semi-aquatic civilization of all the fish people and their goddess statue is just this beautiful woman with like the lobster head and she's covered in kelp and like meat and treasure and they all worship her like 
that that is cool and as a player it's fun to reach those places but i just think that it's if this question instead asked is there a lot of underwater societies and locations in your world i feel like that should be just as sensical you know because mm-hmm. to assume that there's just these big underground cities almost assumes that you need to have them you know what i mean right. and so I mean, that's almost why there are so many questions about magic, you know? Like, it's such an assumption of fantasy to have magic that, of course, the series of questions had to ask, you know, multiple times about it. But to have a question strictly about the underground and all that, I think just, I don't know, speaks to this strange uh, need to have drow in the Underdark. And, you know, with the way that they were pushed in 4th edition and even 3rd edition and 5th edition... Mm -hmm. The fact that the elf in the player's handbook is is Drizzt. Like, I, you know, it's fair. He's the most popular elf in the series of all Dungeons & Dragons stuff. But I still feel like Drow should not be considered just as likely to be played as wood elves and high elves. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a very strange turn that the game takes. We were talking about this before with fantasy, with fancy fantasy races and characters we have you know tabaxi and genasi characters all over the place and i just i don't see a real need to have to like accommodate for that so much you know what i mean yeah but you know it should feel special when it comes up and i I think that summarizes that yep so um i'm gonna go drink some nice tea I'm going to say thank you everybody for listening and dealing with me and my voice i know Probably not the best time to be doing a a podcast when my throat's like this, but it's one of the only times I can nail Sarah down to have her do a podcast with me. So for that, I am grateful. Thank you, Sarah, for helping so much with the series. I am happy to be here. And you are officially fired from ever doing this ever again. Woo! I don't have to get threatened with bodily harm anymore. Oh, I'm free. Free at last. Free at last. You know, if I had you project this much voice throughout the rest of the podcast, I wouldn't have I to just... fire you. I wouldn't have to fire you. No, <laughs> literally laying on your trying. side. I felt like I was really like yelling. Oh, I felt. And then I'm, I'm, like, I'm watching, getting blown and over. I'm watching the recording, and it's like honestly, my my throat my throat is sore just from watching you project so much. Like that that's all Last this is. Last time I was blowing out car windows and now I'm not projecting. I mean you're also laying on your side taking a nap over here. I'm not. I'm just, you know, I'm comfortable. I want to feel comfortable uh, with the listeners. Nothing so says loud projection and voice acting like comfortable with listeners. <laughs> ah yes. But without further ado, I am gonna say thank you everybody again for listening. Um DMs be good to your players. Players be good to your DMs. Uh, Sarah, did you have anything you wanted to plug or anything you want to talk about? No, as per usual. Although next week, season premiere of Picard series premiere, January 23rd, everybody. Make sure you uh, watch and support my boy Peace Do. Peace Do. Peace Do. Patrick Stewart. You know. The only. You know. Okay, well, without further ado, goodbye, everybody.